0: Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Jim Jarmusch is a singular force. A self-proclaimed dilettante, his passions are disparate and wide-ranging, but his love for and dedication to each of his creative endeavours runs deep. After high school, he enrolled at Northwestern University's prestigious Medal School of Journalism. But, legend has it, was asked to leave after he failed to enrol in any journalism classes, preferring instead art history and literature. From there he took a slanting path through academia, studying poetry at Columbia, working for a Parisian art gallery, and eventually getting his masters in film from NYU. Averse to authority and plot, he found a home on the Lower East Side's no-wave scene, where musicians and filmmakers alike rejected the strictures of their respective art forms. Forty years later, Jarmusch's movies, stubbornly peculiar stories like Down By Law, Stranger Than Paradise, Mystery Train and *Dead man are the stuff of cult legend. They seem to take pleasure in toppling cinema's shibboleths. Though less widely known, Jarmusch's musical life has flourished too, in the shadows of his film career. In 2009, with the drummer and movie producer Carter Logan, he formed Squirrel a drone-rock duo taking a similarly iconoclastic, if slightly subtle, attack when surveying the institutions of heavy guitar music. Over the years, they've scored several of Jarmusch's films and released two EPs, but their newest work is their first full-length, standalone document of original sound. Silver Haze has a bit of everything. Nature poetry readings, a prose vision of the apocalypse, a deceptively schmaltzy breakup track, and, of course, churning drones that evoke the form's masters. In advance of the record's release, The Faders' Raphael Helfand spoke to Logan and Jarmusch about Logan's reverence for Sun and Scott Walker, Jim's admiration for John Ashbury and the New School poets, and Squirrel's ultimate goal of making unreservedly ecstatic music.
1: So were both of you just in New Orleans or just you, Jim?
2: No, no, we were both there also with um, with Eric Sanko playing as our, our trio. Yeah, we played this Overlook Festival. That's a kind of horror film festival. Our film, Only Lovers Left Alive, is 10 years old. So they had us as an opening band for their vampire party in a kind of cool club. And then the next night showed... Only Lovers Left Alive with a Q&A, so it was really fun.
1: Well, that sounds great. I was at Big Ears this weekend, which was also great. Oh, wow. Who
2: did you get to see?
1: I, I didn't get to see enough of Mark Rabot, but I got to see like some of one of his sets, and it was great. I saw a lot of Zorn stuff. I saw Stephen O'Malley, which we'll touch on later. A lot of good stuff.
3: We love that festival. We were lucky enough to play there once, but would love to just go back as a fan.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I mean, it's like, it's, it's cool. So, Cause like the artists get to be fans too, as I'm sure, you know, like there's uh, like, you know, I'm walking into a room and like David Burns just kind of standing there watching and enjoying.
2: We were in an elevator with Terry Riley. Like what? Wow.
1: <laughs> so cool. So getting into it, um, I misread uh, the Silver Haze bio at first and thought that it said Stephen O'Malley played on the album. So I've been under that impression until pretty much today. Obviously, this is partly due to Randall Dunn being the producer, uh, but there are definitely moments when your guitar drones sound a bit like Stephen's. You mentioned in your bio statement that you're inspired inspired by Suno. Do either you have like a personal relationship with Stephen or Greg?
2: Yeah, we both do. We kind of go way back with them. Um, we're close with Stephen, and um, of course we know Greg. Stephen was going to play on the record at some point, but didn't happen. I'm not sure what happened, but we love him. Um, I got to program them with Boris playing there uh, at, when I programmed in Tomorrow's Parties years ago. So I got to program Alter with Boris and Son playing together, which was incredible. And yeah we love Steven we always keep in touch with him and we we're big Sun fans of course
3: Yeah and What he's done, also with his record label and all of his, you know, various permutations and collaborations inside Sun and outside, have just been really phenomenal and inspiring to us.
1: While we're on the topic of Sun, I wanted to take a very brief detour to my other favorite subject, uh, which is Scott Walker, He's another pretty like punishing musician, I'd say, like the same way in the same way that Sun is. Are either you guys like big fans of Soust or you know Scott's other work? And have you ever, have either you ever crossed paths with Scott while he was still alive?
2: I never. Did um, I've kept track of his very particular music throughout my life? I believe he's from Ohio too, originally. As am I, so there's that connection. But I, I never saw him perform.
3: No, I've never seen him or met him. But I love soust I was lucky enough to get to attend a like a listening party for it at a bar here in New York. One of the most fascinating things that I learned about it was that. First, that Scott Walker asked Sun to do it and not the other way around, which kind of just blew my mind that he was really on to that kind of thing. And then seeing some of his studio strategies, it all sort of started to make sense. Um, There's some incredible videos of him from around that time working in the studio. And then reading more and talking to Steven and Greg about how I think they said something to Scott. They're like, yeah, well, you know, like when we come to the studio, we bring everything. Like, what do you mean? It's like, well, it's like a truck full of amps. They don't pare it down in the studio. Like the entire immersive sonic experience of sun is is there as well. So to have been a fly on the wall in those sessions would have been really something.
1: I probably overuse the words punishing often to refer to things which I enjoy but I think it's fair to say that Sun is like a really punishing band and Silver Haze there are some like moments that are somewhat punishing but uh, they're tempered by like you know narrative structures and dialogue and sometimes even blues chords and then poetry obviously I feel that way about some of your movies Jim Uh, in relation to some of like the bleaker art films out there do you think that uh, tempering your more punishing instincts with more cinematic ones is something that comes from like working in film?
2: You know honestly I don't really think about it in that way I'm not self-analytical so I don't really I don't really temper anything I just kind of um, react and follow my instincts and my instincts are to be open to mixing things that inspire me so my films can be funny and sad at the same time I hope The music can be dark, but also not take itself seriously at certain times. But I'm the worst person to ask, like, where does it come from? I honestly, I really don't think about it. So I'm, you know, I consider myself a kind of dilettante in in not in a bad way in that I, I, there's so many interesting things in life that I follow. So I can't possibly just devote myself to a small number of them. And I think that comes out in the films and the music, appreciation of just the variety of things in life and of details and just things that are interesting. I think
3: ultimately what we hope to make in some ways is ecstatic music. Jim and I talk about this a lot. For music to be ecstatic, it doesn't necessarily have to be in one sort of genre or category. To us, suicide is ecstatic music, as is Alice Coltrane.
2: Swans. Hildegard von Bingham.
3: There are a lot of components to this and that we've thought about it and considered it, but one of them I think that is a through line involves some level of tension and release. And maybe that's a little bit of what you sense in Silver Haze is that, you know, we're not afraid to get into sonic spaces that might be briefly uncomfortable because we're going to move through those and pass them.
1: That's really interesting. You mentioned ecstatic music. Not to go too, too far off another tangent, but I just interviewed Liturgy. Are you guys familiar with her work? Yes. Yes. She referred to like the the passage of like extreme metal on her last album, uh, which is really amazing, as uh, unbound ecstasy.
2: Hmm. But the thing is, I have to add that in terms of tempering things, you use that word. I think we're conscious of tempering things that we take seriously with things that we think are funny you know like uh one of my favorite quotes is is oscar wilde said life is far too important to be taken seriously we make some music that kind of is inspired by ecstatic music but we don't take it so seriously as to not have something lighter mixed in somehow and and we again we don't calculate it but it's just it's just kind of who we are and what we like ourselves.
3: Yeah, joy is an ecstatic state, just as much as dread,
2: and and humor too is for me an, ecsta- <laughs> an ecstatic state. Where would we be without comedians on the planet? You know, I used to think about okay, the mo- you know, my religion is the imagination. So the most important people to me are artists, scientists, musicians, people who express things that come from. The, the place of their imagination, which of course scientists do also. But then I realized, you know, I'm forgetting one of the most important groups of human expression, which are comedians. So now I, 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 I revere them with the greatest scientists and composers and painters, you know, in the history of humans. Comedians are incredibly important.
1: I only just got The credits from Catherine for the album which is my fault um so i generally don't really know what the division of labor looked like in the album i know carter you played the drums obviously and jimmy played a lot of guitar and then uh you had arian excuse me if i'm pronouncing that wrong um and brent as well but like in general like who was in charge of what in in the writing process Was was the writing process all you two
2: um well it depends by what you mean by writing a lot of times we started with initial tracks many of which I recorded alone before any of this, just gathering like kind of uh, droning guitar tracks, some structured things. And then um, we shape them together. Carter will uh, put drum tracks, Arjan bass parts. Carter often adds very kind of minimally beautiful electronics here and there or some percussion, or I might add some very light, some electronics mixed back or shortwave radio static or something like that. So we sort of shaped them together. The songs with lyrics are, are lyrics that I wrote, but uh, we kind of create them together. And then again, of course, with Randall Dunn. So we were all kind of shaping them together. I, I would call it more shaping things together than actually like writing something. I I don't know. It just seems more appropriate to our approach.
3: At its core, I mean, Jim and I originated the ideas behind this, nurtured them along with a lot of collaborators and just built them up in the way that the songs really wanted to be. We listened to the songs both sonically but also sort of to hear what they wanted, what further layers they wanted. So from my perspective, you know, a lot of that took taking Jim's initial electric guitar tracks and adding drums, Moog synthesizers, electric guitar at times, usually used in an unconventional way, like a loop or a, with a sustaining, an electronic sustainer. We're just looking to create space and create textures that sound. In the same sonic family
2: yeah and sometimes it's kind of haphazard like arjan was he's great he was in black mountain and stuff he's a great bass player and guitarist but like in the past it'd be like ah uh, we need a line on this thing you want to use this organ that shane stoneback has or carter do you want to play a bass part here or uh, you know, like okay, and then Carter will pick up a bass and put a track down, or they kind of unfold as we are assembling them. Assembling's a good word too.
3: Yeah, more than anything, you just start to hear it and feel it. We'll be listening to playback in the studio and say, like, I I can hear bass on this, or I can hear you know some kind of higher frequency texture in here or counter melody
2: for example the song on there that's called the end of the world right that's a thing where we had this instrumental thing we were working on and carter and randall were sort of shaping it and i was writing these this text down because i was thinking about teenagers that have always been my kind of guide culturally and i was thinking about the the war in the Ukraine, which had just began not too much earlier, and uh, I wrote this text. And uh, I think they thought I was just on my phone or something. I, I don't know. But then I told them, "Yeah, yeah, I have this text. Well, I don't know. It's it's inspired by the music." What, what, here, they said, "Well, what is it?" I read them some. They said, "Get in the booth and record that." So we recorded that, and then toward the then Carter. It refers to these sirens in the music, in the in the in the in the, the text, and then Carter uh, added some little electronic stuff that, and added these kind of reference to the sirens, you know, because it suggested it to him, so he did that right away, and so we kind of yeah assemble stuff by what we're hearing.
1: Yeah, uh, I was going to ask about the end of the world at the end of the interview, but uh, since we're on it now, um, what is a crypto car?
2: (laughs) I don't know. Um, My daughter's a teenager. She had for a while a boyfriend kind of crazy who uh, had somehow acquired these kind of uh, European muscle cars that are like drifting kind of vehicles, you know, this kind of stuff. And I just uh, I think he maybe acquired them, having traded crypto when he was supposed to be doing his school and his homework. I, I don't know exactly, you know. Yeah. So I was just kind of pulling things from around my the periphery of my consciousness and trying to describe a state of the a condition for this kind of band of semi-feral teenagers that i was imagining in a kind of post-apocalyptic or uh, apocalyptic kind of scenario i i don't really know but it just kind of poured out and i wrote it down and then we recorded it i don't know the sirens sound frequently each time those very few who are still unsheltered those still out in the open rush toward the secured entrances to the underground An older man, approaching 70, remains in his apartment, now a vulnerable elevated bunker. From his single window, he surveys the vast concrete plaza below.
1: the apocalyptic vision that the song presents is like very specific. And I was wondering, do you have any favorite like apocalyptic visions in art or movies or, you know, anything?
2: Oh God, certainly. um, I'd say right off the bat, um, JG Ballard is one of the most important for me because I've read him all my life and I consider him a kind of prophetic predictor of things in a very beautiful way. So J.G. Ballard, certainly. But the history, there's a whole history of apocalyptic cinema, for sure. And there are other kind of prophetic writers like William Burroughs in a, a different way. So, yeah, I don't know. In terms of movies, it, it'd be way too hard to start listing, you know, Solient Green to, you know, there's so many films. To the Dead Don't <laughs> Die. Yeah. yeah, To the <laughs> Dead Don't Die, exactly
1: how about you carter
3: definitely ballard generally i think cinema has given us some incredible examples from dawn of the dead to uh oh man yeah
2: that's a hard question
1: is there any music that you think of as a particularly apocalyptic that you really enjoy
3: I have to say, one of the more sort of like terrifying albums that I ever heard in that way that really like put me into that kind of space was by Hacks and Cloak, who I think you know I don't know Bobby uh, Kurlick, but is a phenomenal composer. But his initial records as Hack the Hacks and Cloak are utterly haunting, and I think really lend themselves towards this kind of feeling of isolation and uh, doom the thing is ultimately i don't think that that's the music that i would probably want to listen to at the end of the, the world i think that ultimately what i return to are like great songs that have meant something in my life in different places because music has a credible capacity to conjure memory of time and place. And it's very powerful in that way. And so I think that in an apocalyptic state, I might choose to be maybe a bit more like the teenagers in the song and celebrate what we have left.
1: So yeah, I mean, I wanted to go back a little bit to your uh, your other collaborators in the album, uh, the featured artists. Obviously, they're pretty impressive. You have Mark Rabot, Annika, and Charlotte Gainsbourg. I was lucky enough, as I said, to catch part of Mark's last set at Big Ears last weekend uh, with Los Cubanos Postizos. He's such an incredibly like versatile guitarist, and you've got him on two different tracks doing, I think, two very different things, if I'm identifying which guitar is his correctly. Um, How did that uh, creative partnership in general and those two tracks in particular come about?
2: Well, I've known Mark for a long time, since like uh, early to mid-80s. He even played on the scores to Down by Law and Mystery Train, I think.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
2: And I've seen Mark play many, many times. I've hung out with Mark in a lot of places, including Tokyo once. Uh, It was really strange. I consider Mark to be like a gunfighter, you know, like you call him in to do a hit job. He can, he can play, you know, he's just so amazing. And a couple months ago, we were in Chicago together where I got to see Mark do a live score with an acoustic guitar only to Charlie Chaplin film, The Kid. And it was so nuanced and beautiful and I don't know, it was just, it blew me away, you know, like, I forgot that it was even Mark playing a musical instrument, you know, it was so moving. So Mark, he can do anything, you know, and so we brought it, we asked if he would come in and play on one track, we, it was the one called um, Il Il Deserto Rosso from the Antonioni film, and we said, Mark, you want to listen to this through once he he's got set up? And he said, no, no, I don't want to hear it first. I-, I know, Squirrel, I-, I know what it's like. Just, uh, just roll it, and I'll play. So he recorded, I think the first take is what's on the record. Then he did two more takes that were completely different, the last of which he was playing the guitar with his car keys. And uh, then we were, like, blown away. And then he said, hey, you got anything else I might play on? So, you know, we queued up another track which he'd never heard and just kind of unleashed it on him. And there he goes, man, he is incredible. What kind of a musical genius? I don't know, but he, he's always been remarkable to me and he's such a focused, serious, but kind and funny person, you know? So he's just amazing.
1: Obviously, Anika, also a very special artist. Yeah, and I I love her presence on this record and your dialogue with her. Um, In some ways, it's cute, but it's never, like, cutesy, and I think that's largely because, like, nothing Anika does is ever, like, not cool. It's also pretty sad if you read it as a breakup song, which I'm not sure is correct, but um, the image of the beach is, like, so simple yet so intense, and I'm wondering... um, about the writing process on that one. Like, was it collaborative with Annika or was it just you?
2: I gave her the lyrics and the song and its structure. And so it was a little odd for her because I think she has another way she might prefer to collaborate, which we'd like to try with her in the future. Maybe give her some tracks and say, do you have any thoughts, vocal line, melody line, lyrics, because I think she's open to do some something else with us. But this, I I, I gave her the, the song was written, and then I thought, well, what if I if it's a thing? Uh, not exactly Lee Hazelwood, Nancy Sinatra, but you know that 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 tradition of two people, and uh, the lyrics were already there. So she gave it her interpretation on a few passes, but sort of like you said, whatever Annika does is cool. So, you know, um, we were just so happy to get to do something. We'd like to do something more with her. You know, she's, I love seeing her live too. I want to see her again, her band. She's great. She's just kind of mysterious. And, you know, what a vo- beautiful voice, her presence. She's just, we we love her.
1: I think Saving the Best for Last, for me at least, I loved uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg coming in and reading uh, to John Ashbery poems. First off, can you tell me a bit more about why Ashbery and the New School Poets mean so much to you?
2: Well, me, I studied with Kenneth Koch and also David Shapiro. So they are two um, members of the so-called New York School, uh, obviously, along with Frank O'Hara and James Schuyler and Kenward Elmsley and Ron Padgett, who wrote the poems for the film Patterson, by the way. Well, we, we had created this instrumental track together, and I, I had called it John Ashbery Takes a Walk, because it was a kind of meandering—it seemed like someone taking a walk to me. And I love John Ashbery. So then I thought, after we recorded it, I thought, wow, what if we got Charlotte to recite one or two of these very early poems from Ashbery's first book, which is called Some Trees? And these are two of my favorite poems ever of his, although I have many. Uh, So I I know Charlotte, I asked her if she might be interested. I sent her the poems and the music and just said, I don't know, would you maybe read these? And then she called back a few days later saying, well, how would you like me to record it remotely? You know, what would work technically? So she was into it. And, uh, you know, she's just incredible, that softness of her delivery of things. Um, She is a really great musician. You know, there's something, I love her music. I, I love what she does musically. She's also an incredible actress because she's totally natural always. You know, you never see her acting out something in the films she's in. Um, but as a musician, we were just thrilled to just have her voice there reading and her, her accent being French and and British and also her connection to her father's aesthetic of using these quiet female voices that Charlotte carries on and makes her own, you know, but, uh, it is a kind of lineage of her incredible father as well, but she's her own person. uh, No question about that. And, uh, Oh, man, we were just so happy. When we got the recordings back, I couldn't stop listening to them. That was really a great pleasure to have Charlotte's uh, Molecules in this recording. This record,
1: uh, so yeah, I mean, I was curious about. I mean, because "Some Trees" is obviously like a very, is a classic poem. Like, I know nothing about poetry really, and I, even I know that poem, livre sur le table. That poem is is is, I think, a little bit less well known. Um, I'm I'm curious, about, like, what in particular about that poem speaks to you?
2: Well, I love that poem also, and I loved it too because it's in English, but the title's in French. Um, Charlotte is English and French, right? So. <laughs> And um, I love I loved listening to her speak French or English, you know? So it just, and it's also a very beautiful poem. So it just seemed logical. And at first, when we gave her the two poems, we weren't sure, should we just use one? Um, and then they, she read them both to the music and sent the recording back, and they just seemed to fit beautifully, both of them. So we used them both.
1: integrity exists by deprivation or logic of strange position. This being so, we can only imagine a world in which a woman walks and wears her hair and knows all that she does not know. Yet we know.
0: That was Squirrel's Jim Jarmush and Carter Logan talking to The Fader's Raphael Healthhand. Squirrel's new album, Silver Haze, drops this Friday, May 5, via Sacred Bones. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross and the associate producer is Raphael Healthhand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com and we'd like to thank James Ivy for providing our intro music if you'd enjoyed today's episode we'd appreciate if you left a 5 star rating and review and keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news interviews and essays we'll be back next week with another episode of the Fader interview goodbye until then